Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we're now up to episode 13 and the high quality conversations just keep on coming. And this one is no exception. So in this episode, I speak with David Nolan. David is an MSK physiotherapist working within the NHS in the UK, in Sheffield in the north of England. He's a full-time clinician, currently spending his clinical days between occupational health and primary MSK care as an extended role MSK physiotherapist at PhysioWorks in Sheffield. And as we discuss in the podcast, his research interests are around manual handling, lifting and back pain. And in this episode, we discuss his research, looking at the views and beliefs of physiotherapists and manual handling advisors around lifting, and how these relate to their back pain beliefs. We've actually repeated this study with osteopaths in the UK, and we're due to publish this paper later this year. We also talk about his systematic review, which looked at the differences in lifting between people with and without back pain. And David shares his extensive clinical experience in assessing and managing lifting beliefs and behaviours in people with back pain. And one thing just to say, you might notice a bit of interference in sound during the first eight minutes or so. Don't let this distract you from David's incredibly valuable insights to back pain and lifting. And I bring you David Nolan. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So, we could start by you just introducing yourself and telling the listeners about your clinical background, maybe your academic background. Right. I'm David Nolan. I'm a physio and I work in Sheffield and I work in the NHS. So I'm an NHS employee at Sheffield Children's Hospital. My clinical background. So I've been a physio. I qualified in 2006, Christmas of 2006. And I've always worked in the MSK field. I came out at a time where there were, there were no jobs in physio. So the, the traditional route for physio at the time was you qualify, you go and do your junior rotations, you go and do your band fives and your band sixes. And I just happened to come out at a time where there was just no jobs at all. And I was wedded to Sheffield, so I couldn't move. My wife, well, my now wife and that, we you know couldn't leave. So I then set up about, I just... I think I set up my own practice um, out of a gym, which I'm not sure I'd ever recommend to anyone right now. Um, but then just went straight into MSK. I managed to get an, a mentorship with a physio colleague of mine who's a friend of mine now in Sheffield, and he kind of mentored me. And I've been working in the MSK background ever since. After a few years working privately and going on all the training courses you can think of, everything. I mean, you know, I was self-employed at the time, and you could use all your income on these training courses. Yeah. I decided I needed to get a load more experience. So then I started to get jobs in, um, went down to Lincoln to do lots of GP contracts down there. And then about 10 years ago, there was an advert in the NHS where there was a, a small trust called Southwest Shortshire Partnership were setting up a trial physio, fast track physio referral for their staff within an occupational health department. And I had no real dreams of working in occupational health. I was um, a full-on physio, but I thought, that sounds like an interesting job. It was a temporary 12-month contract. I thought, I'll take a punt. And that was the start of eight really happy years, actually. We got this job in an occupational health department, didn't know a great deal about occupational health physio, but was really happy there for eight years. We had a great little team. 
and kind of evolved the service, set up the service, proved it was useful, I think, proved it was helpful, grew it. Then it got made permanent, and then I started to take on occupational health responsibilities. So it wasn't just a treatment service. I then expanded what I did into managing people coming in and out of occupational health departments, and then it became a little bit more getting involved with manual handling training. So it happened that way around. It's a bit of an accident, really. To what extent, or how much of your work caseload is MSK, and how much of it is other kind of occupational hazards? Or uh, so when I was working as a physio in occupational health, it was all MSK. Yeah, so occupational health within a place of work will, will deal with all um, occupational hazards. But I just dealt with pain problems. Yeah, so it was back pain, shoulder pain, neck pain, um, all in the workplace. And there was a big driver around 2010 that occupational health departments should have treatment services within them, fast track for their staff so we could minimize time at work, the time off work. Okay. So that was, that was the big driver at the time, yeah. And that's what got me into occupational health and the manual handling training and all that. It was a bit of an accident, really. And so one of the big reasons why I wanted to speak to you was your, the work you've done on lifting, particularly lifting beliefs, or, or at least the beliefs which are driving lifting, and physios, MHAs, perceptions around safe lifting or unsafe lifting. How did you get into, and we'll talk about, we'll get to that, that work, but how did you fall into to doing some research into the area? So I've always seen myself very much, I, I like treating patients, I still love it. And I've always, you know, and around in the last 10 or 15 years, I'm sure your profession and our profession, we've been grappling with this problem of back pain. You know, difficult presentations, people turning up and we're grappling with, you know, a lot of the evidence around the 90s and 2000s. You know, we're not particularly helping people. What is going on? It was around that time that, you know, I'd swallowed hundreds of courses or dozens of courses. And I then started to become aware of the work of Peter O'Sullivan and I've been on a few of his courses. And that to me was a little bit of a, of a light, which I kind of ran with a little bit. So I very much looked at it from a treatment of back pain and patients were coming in and we were looking at how they were moving and what they believed and how their believements were influencing their movements and all this sort of stuff. And then we were running them through treatment paradigms of getting them going again. And then you put that into an occupational background and I was still very much clinical, clinical, clinical. And then you look at what we teach and tell people in and around lifting and the sort of workplace messages we give and you can start to see how they can actually become quite conflicting with with mm. each other. And I think you know, from part of the from part, from physio, I think we're all aware of that. You know, if we, a lot of our patients coming in with very negative beliefs about the spine, they're very pathoanatomically driven. They're really strong beliefs that their spine is damaged. They're really worried about their discs. And part of our job as treating clinicians has been to expose these people to much more confident, better movements, often getting them to round the back and to start to bend and do things. And our treatment results were good. But there's an uncomfortable truth in that, that part of culture, and I think manual handling training is part of culture, was actually telling people um, messages and giving it in a tone that was a little bit in conflict to what we were trying to do in the treatment of people people with back pain. And that's how I kind of fell into it. It was like a, a frustration almost with training and treatment and, and them jarring. And I was thinking, right, is there a way we can slightly get these to jar less? And so how is it you teamed up with the authors you did? So, so Peter Sullivan's on some of the papers, right? How did you make that connection? How did I make a connection? Well, it wasn't... So I've done a load of courses. 
through 2006 and 2007 and you know, done a lot of Pilates training, minutes training, loads of different stuff and was thoroughly confused. Um, thought seriously about leaving the profession. In fact, I'd just done an SIJ course um, the week before I first saw Pete. And it was my second SIJ course because the SIJ course the year before, I was really struggled with. You know, it's like, I'm not sure I get this. I can't. It's, it's, it's more complex than I know not to do with it. It's, and I, th- I was at a point of, in fact, I remember at the time, I just applied. It was about, I'd only been qualified about two years at this point. I just applied for a management position at Sainsbury's. They do these telephone. I thought, I'm not sure I can do this game because I can't see these new these sacral mutations, upslips, downslips. I just can't do this. Um, it doesn't make sense to me. And then in about 2007 or 2008, with my mentor who kept laughing at me every time I kept coming back from these SI joint courses, he said, let's go and listen to Peter Sullivan. And it just was at the right time for me. It just, it struck me um, that he was, he was himself evolving a lot. Um, so he was shifting because, uh, I mean, part of the conversation in that course was the years before Pete was still sucking in trans abs and, and, and doing these things and he was evolving. But I just saw a way of thinking and approach that just made sense. And more importantly, it made sense to my patients and it made sense to the people in front of me. Now, my personality is reasonably obsessive and compulsive. Um, so obviously then I turned into a little bit of a Pete Stalker. And he came over to the UK most years, and where he went, I went, and I wasn't married, I had no children at the time, so it would be anywhere in the UK. And so I think he started to like recognize me occasionally, and you build up conversations and relationships like, like you do with anyone. So. Then Kieran O'Sullivan did a podcast, and he was. They were talking about, you know, the the CFT. Do you know what CFT is? I've done a, I've done a podcast with Charlton Viperson, who we talk all about CFT. Ah, yes, another, you know, fantastic person in around back pain, and he talked about the looking to get into the occupational world. And I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm sold on this. This is this is the way I'd like to align my way with treatment. And here's Kieran O'Sullivan saying, you know, we'd like to get in the occupational world. Hang on, I work in the occupational world. So I think I, I think I might have tweeted him, or I sent him a direct message on Twitter or an email, and it was just, um, listen, I work on occupational health. How can I help? And it was that conversation. He went, oh, I don't know how you can help. What are you thinking? I went, <laughs> I don't know what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? Um, and it just grew from there, and we built up a bit of a relationship. We started. They invited me to Limerick, and it, it grew. And then we started to put some ideas down on paper. We got some data. We wrote the data. We got a few papers, and it just grows from there. So that's really how I got involved with them. I think we've all got a little bit of Peter Sullivan stalkerness in this. I think like he's such an infectious. He is. His yeah. He just his his enthusiasm, his passion, his clarity is it's just brilliant. Like he's just totally informed and presents that knowledge or translates that knowledge so well to clinicians and patients. So yeah, I love listening to both Kieran and Peter. Yeah, I mean, I mean and, and the whole team. The, the yeah, whole, yeah, the whole team. There's a whole group of them and. They, they share values, they're kind, they're given time, free of charge. They, you know, they, they do it for nothing. They honestly do it for the greater good. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan. So those, these, I'm talking about these three papers because the three that I'm thinking of, and I know you wrote a, a kind of fourth editorial about posture or you, you contribute to that, but the three papers I have in mind are the three which you kind of lead on, which are the, the two which explore physiotherapists and manual handling's lifting beliefs and perceptions around safe lifting. And the third one was the systematic review, which you did. It may not have been in that order, order. So maybe you can just begin to introduce that work to the listeners. I'm obviously familiar with it, but I'm sure many people are. But it'd be good to get 
you just to, to lay out at least those first two papers, which are obviously tied to the same study? Yeah, so we wanted to, uh, we were interested in the back beliefs of physiotherapists and manual handling advisors and whether that correlated with the lifting advice they gave or what they perceived with as the safest form of lifting. So we got a study where we got, I think, 400 people in the end. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, okay. Thank you. You've probably read it since I have. <laughs> um, we got 400 people, and I think, I think about 140 of them were manual handling assessors, movement handling assessors, and the rest of them were physiotherapists. And we put them through a questionnaire and the questionnaire was we asked them to fill in the, the 34 item backpack which is the back pain attitudes questionnaire of ben darling which is 34 questions which analyzes people's beliefs around back pain under six themes and then we also gave them four pictures of me in a fetching pair of shorts um ben- was that you was it Oh, yeah, yeah. So I just I can recognize that the black rectangle was it all the abs you couldn't recognize it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's me that was, that was me in my clinic room in Wakefield. And it was me just picking up a box in four different ways. Two of ways which were more with, with a straight back and a deeper knee bend. Two varieties of that. And two of them were with more of a round back. One with like more of a semi-round back with a, with a bit of a knee bend. And then a full-on um, straight leg round back lift. And we asked them the question of what did they perceive as the safest lifting technique and why and we gave them a little qualitative box on why and then we just let all the answers came in and we analyzed it and the data we got from the first paper was we we bracketed the four lifting techniques into two into two so we had two that were straight back and two that we defined as round back and it's important so we defined a manual handling advisor as someone that worked in manual handling and advised people in a manual handling capacity but they weren't a physio and then it was physiotherapists, any physiotherapist. Yeah, all you needed was a physiotherapy qualification. And then we analysed their beliefs, and we found that manual handling advisors had significantly, a, a decent number, but significantly more negative beliefs around the back and back pain than, than physiotherapists. Their beliefs were a lot better. So that was really, and then we also looked at differences between people that thought straight back lifting was the safest so one of the two straighter and for people that looked at more round back lifting they were quite happy that 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 was safe were there differences in the back beliefs around that and we found that people who thought straight back lifting was safest had more negative back beliefs than people who thought one of the roundabouts were safest it was across the board across both groups yeah viewed round back as being more dangerous but it was just more so on the mhas the manual handling advisors yeah, so if you look at, we, we, I think we've got 140 manual handling advisors and only three of them, four, I'd need to check, but a handful of them picked lift three. So if you, if you remember the four lifts, yeah, lift four was like a full-on straight leg round back. Nobody picked that. Almost in either physio or manual handling, no one picked that. So you're looking at the two straighter back and basically the one with a slight round and a bit of a knee bend, which is actually how I lift, but that's, I'm not saying that's the best way, but that's how I lift. So no manual handling advisor virtually picked lift free. They were all straight back. And in the physiotherapists, we had about a third of them. So still the vast majority picked straight back lifting in the physiotherapists. But about a third of them seemed pretty comfortable with lift three and said, you know what, that, that looks safest to me. And then, we, and then we analyzed the quality of data. And did you define safe or not safe? I guess that was what the, the qual data might have illuminated, but you just put 
whatever they thought was safe there that was what safe was yeah so which which technique do you consider safest i think that was the question and i said something like please assume the load in the box was heavy for the participant but tolerable to actually lift something like that and then the second you the secondary analysis where you kind of delve deeper into the construction of those beliefs where you spent more time analyzing the backpack data i think yeah, we did. So, you know, it's interesting to find out, yet yeah, they seem to have more negative beliefs. But the but Ben Darlow's questionnaire goes into six themes in the 34 item, which actually look at people's beliefs around a variety of themes. So they were, I'm thinking off the top of my head, the vulnerability of the spine. So there's questions around how vulnerable you think the spine is. There's questions around how much you think you need to protect the spine. There's questions around pain and injury, how much you think pain and injury are linked. There's questions around special nature of back pain, like back pain is uniquely vulnerable and it's the back's the one that will always get you but yeah ankle pain's all right then there's questions around activity and back pain and then there's about prognosis and back pain around you know if you've had back pain once that's you done for life compared to you know actually the prognosis is pretty good most of the time so yeah we weren't sure from the first paper of yes they seem to be more negative but why and where and was it across the board or was it just that they had more need to protect the back and yeah the second paper analyzed it was across the board apart from activity and back pain so whether you had a round back or a straight back the participants were very happy that it was good to stay active when you had back pain interesting that message is carried through but the other ones haven't which almost it's a bit like a split personality isn't it so you know we've had 20 or 30 years now of hammering messages We've had 30 years now where we get it, stay active with back pain, stay active with back pain. You ask any person in the street now, do you need to stay active with back pain? Oh, yeah, you've got, you got to stay active with back pain. That message has definitely been told and it's been heard. And that's what we found in our studies. So straight back, bent back, didn't matter. Stay active with back pain, that's fine. But how? But now we're moving the argument onto, but how do you stay active? Because it almost seems like people are saying, right, stay active with back pain, but be careful. Stay active with back pain, but protect your back and be careful. Mm. It's like, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, what does that look like? And I think those are the more nuances of the conversation that we're, that we're sort of hinting at in our papers, and especially in the systematic review that we came to actually do later, where we're like, what, you know, the public gets stay active with back pain, but what's next? What comes next? Because we found across the board that, yeah, if they, that they were more negative in the, in the protect domain, they were more likely to think pain and injury were linked. They were more likely to think that back was special and they were more likely to think that the prognosis was poorer. So really what you want to do now, a few years ago, a couple of years ago you published those, is, is, is to really dive in with some qual work. I mean, you know, really deep qualitative work and to really get to the... Have you done it already? We're doing some. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Research takes time. <laughs> Part of this process, I've got a really good group of friends, um, especially in Leicester, Chris Newton and Gurpreet Singh and the team in Leicester. And, when, and we've got a qualitative paper that we're writing up, writing up at the minute at, at this time. Yeah. So that's coming. Yeah, because the the, the, the two papers were, I was like, oh, but what's, you kind of want, why? You want, you know, that you get a really good sense of the beliefs around some of those domains or themes that you said, but to have some, you know, real contextual data about, well, what does it mean to protect or where do these beliefs come from? That that'd be a great addition, I think, and kind of fill you know, what's the word? Um, fill the picture, fill the. I don't know what yeah, I agree. We're on it. Yeah. <laughs> so that leads us to the systematic review that came about afterwards. Yeah. And so maybe you can set some of the so the whole the whole idea between lifting straight back, round back, 
both occupationally, but also you see it in training, right? In lifting and deadlifting and going to gyms. That same debate carries over in terms of should you be lifting a weight with a with straight back or roundabout? Is it, is it dangerous? So maybe just set the record straight for us. Settle that debate once and for all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't settle the debate because I don't, I don't think we have the data to settle that debate in and around what is the correct technique and what is safest. And people always try and because can we go to the systematic review and then I'll come back to answer that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't mind. So the systematic review, again, you've probably read that more recently than I have, but that that came around around there's a there's a clinical I think the best questions are clinical questions that start as clinical questions where people keep walking in my treatment room. He said, hang on, people that could come in and lift with back pain look to me by my eyes like they're lifting differently than people that don't come in and have back pain. Yeah, and to me and to my eyes, and we can back this up with some of the data that Vin Dankarts did around well, probably 15 years ago now, where it looked to me that a lot of the time people with back pain were keeping their back straighter. They were squatting. They were keeping a straighter back. And that seemed to be the picture that I could see. So then we thought, right, and people that didn't have back pain didn't. Now, we're not drawing – there's no causation here, but we're thinking, right, well, what does the literature say around this? So if we, get a, if we just trawl the literature systematically and say, are there differences in lifting techniques according to the literature of people with back pain and people without back pain? And that's what started the idea of the systematic review. And then we got our group together, Ben Smith and Kieran and Chris and, and Gertrude, and we said, right, let's do a systematic review. And we did it. And then we found out that the literature seems to be consistent with what our clinical ob- observation was, that people with back pain lift differently. And when they lift differently, they tend to lift with a bit less range of motion. You know, you can argue about exactly how much, and some of the papers weren't great as methodological quality, but they tended to lift less, so flex less. They tended to bend the knees more, and they tended to be stiffer. Now, EMG data is messy, and I think you need to be, we need to be cautious with how we interpret some EMG data, but the general trend around the literature was that they bend stiffer. And they squat more, so, so we're thinking, great. So our clinical observation is backed up with the and they're they're bracing more, or that didn't come out so much on the EMG data. Yeah, it kind of did. I mean, you look at Bill Maris's work around that, and they do look like they're recruiting globally around, around the trunk more. Yeah, so it's abdominal side flexors, lat dorsi seem to be a bit more active when people lift. They're not. Now, what are thoughts around that? And we are biased around this, and I am biased, and I'm going to admit that. My clinical bias around this is what we're seeing is we're seeing an embodiment of behavior. We're seeing people, in my view, that are doing a task that, that is threatening to them. It's a threat. It's hurt them before. Now, where that th- now, how that threat is built, that's an interesting one. But they're doing a threatening task, and in doing that threatening task, they're protecting themselves. And in protecting themselves, what we're observing is their behavior, that stiffer, Mm. that less bent, stiffer, braced, Mm. cautious sort of lifting strategy, slower as well came out of it. So that's what I think we're seeing. And and like you said, the study couldn't determine causation. No. But it's hard to really decipher why this group of people with back pain, or more generally people with back pain, are moving or lifting differently and whether or not the lifting differently and moving differently preceded the back pain or it's because of the back pain that's what we're saying right yeah that is what we're saying i mean but then uh, nick sansini and pete at the same time did another systematic review in a similar field but they looked at they looked at back flexion didn't they so they so, so they looked so they looked at the posture of the lumbar spine 
and where reflection and whether that then went on to predict whether those people went on to go on and have back pain. There was Laird's systematic review too, I think, looking at lumbar pelvic kinematics, yeah. which found the same, I think. Uh, they slower with less variability they moved. Yeah, but that was movement. It wasn't lifting, was it? Mm. Yeah, mm. I think that, that was just flexion tasks. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. What is the so lifting versus flexion? Are they is it important to differentiate? Well, we did because um, we wanted to do a study on often some of the flexion literature is they start to restrain people, so they fix the pelvis and they get them to try and bend. Yeah, and they look, and they look at how far they're flexing. We those systematic reviews have been done. So if we wanted to actually do something new and novel, we had to look, look at something different. So we looked at, we wanted it to be freestyle lifting. Mm-hmm. So it had to be not just moving and bending, it had to be lifting a load. And it had to be freestyle, it had to be untaught, and it had to be non-restrained. And, that, and those were part of the defining criteria of the systematic review. So David, in terms of the lifting associated at the gym, so there's a few ways we could tackle this. One is the whole core stability thing and how that translates to to everyday functional tasks but i think and i think it was in peter sullivan's cft paper the one where he really laid out in physical therapy journal cft as a as a, in a methodology or clinical methodology he said it's taking the behavior in the gym out into everyday life in terms of lifting and bracing say something about that yeah well i mean I do go, I mean, I do have a gym in my garage and I do deadlift. I mean, I haven't done it for a couple of years. I mean, and I am not, we are not anti-muscle. I, we are not anti really good, strong muscles that can contract and relax and can do wonderful things and can run and can play tennis and can lift weights. So when I'm lifting my weight, which is not particularly impressive, by the way, if you want to see it in the gym. But when I'm lifting something that I'm working bloody hard to actually lift, I am bracing myself. But that's something that comes totally naturally. I mean, it isn't something I think about. It's not something I pre set it's something my body does mm. i pick up how x kilos let's say you know say i pick up 100 kilos oh my god my muscles are working bloody hard yeah and i'm bracing myself now i put i put the weight down and that changes yeah i i my muscle system switches off and i do what's appropriate for the task that's in front of me now i think what we see is is we see people taking seeing that in a gym in a, in a gym situation fine if you're lifting 150 kilos 100 kilos whatever you're going to use that recruitment strategy but then to try and say to take that idea into that theory into the workplace into with loads that are trivially small i mean i'd even call you know five, 10 kilos, pretty trivially small weight, to be quite honest. To take those strategies of movement and then to try and apply that to that environment is inappropriate. And when we see people who are, um, it almost looks to me like they're using these strategies for incredibly high loading, for incredibly trivial tasks. It seems to be that's what we see. I'm not sure how useful that is to them. And then that takes us to a source of beliefs or a, a source of perpetuation of those beliefs. And I'm not feel like I'm going to accuse the whole fitness gym industry of single-handedly engendering erroneous beliefs in patients. But there is, you, you see it, at least I see it a lot, patients that either regularly exercise, see trainers, and just translate the advice that they've been given within a gym environment to everyday life. And it starts to, they say, well, I'm told to keep my back straight when I lift at the gym. So therefore, I must keep my back straight when I put my socks on. Yeah, but also you look in the gym and, you know, I think there's powerful beliefs come out of the gym. I really do. And you asked me a question about pushback I've had in the past. And I said, oh, I've not really had a great deal of pushback. People are now coming to me and 
gym people have come back and said, no, that's wrong. That's dangerous. And I don't know what it is, whether it's it's a specific type of personality of people that come out of a gym, um, but they have very strong beliefs in around lifting and straight back. But if you then look at them and you look at world strongest man contests and you look at some of them lifting and you look at people doing deadlift world records and you're looking at muscle efficiency, mm. they don't, you know, it looks different to me, you know, that they actually do get a rounding of the back because it's a slightly more neuromuscularly efficient movement. And to, for them to max out, they, they kind of have to. Now, what they say is, is oh, I, my form's perfect when I'm training and when I'm pulling on my one rep max, I then let my back round a bit to pull it out efficiently. And, you know, and I don't think we know much whether, you know, on the safety of that around pressures in the spine and stuff, but it, they seem to be contradictory to me. But it would seem completely sensible to say that, you know, low loads are different to high loads. Like it would, it would be reasonable to say, well, some of the biomechanical demands are different. Like the tolerances of tissues, deadlifting 200 kilos is different to deadlifting yeah. a, a cat, right? Definitely. I mean, you know, and I'm, I'm fairly simple where around lifting advice I give, I mean, I split it into two sort of things. If, if people, if it's trivially light stuff, just 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 lift it. I won't even give it a second thought. Bend your back and move it. Who really cares? And if it's really heavy stuff for you, then you know that get the loading close and and the, you know that sort of advice seems really appropriate. So getting back to the beliefs. So clinically speaking, what what can we what can we take from your two papers looking at? MHAs and physios, what are the current beliefs around lifting? We're going to generalize, but across kind of healthcare and maybe even you know more public uh, in regards to just the public. What do Joe blogs and Joe physio blogs perceive safe lifting to be? Almost everybody believes safe lifting to be keeping your back straight and getting a, de- a deep knee bend, like a deep squat bend, avoid flexion. Yeah. That is almost a unanimous belief, and that's quite um, in line with what will happen the next time a patient walks through the door. <laughs> you know, those are absolutely common beliefs, and they're common beliefs around movement handling advisors, and still common but less common amongst physiotherapists. I think that's what you can take around those papers, and that those beliefs are associated with more globally negative back beliefs. And then, so Ben Dahler's work would say that those beliefs on the part of the clinician or professional just pollinate into the patient yeah. and, and contribute to patients' beliefs and behaviours around lifting and, and back pain. Yeah, so if we've got so if, if we've got a hypothesis where people are coming in lifting and my, our hypothesis is these people are doing a threatening task and they're protecting themselves. And so part of my treatment would often be around this, would be, right, well, I need to expose this person to lifting in, in a different way. But if the vast majority of the healthcare professionals that they're seeing actually believe that the way that this person in pain is lifting is the correct way and the safe way they will reinforce those beliefs in those people and so the next question is where do you where do these beliefs come from so but on the part on, on the public we can say these are kind of culturally socially derived to some extent yeah. and we contribute to those beliefs but in education so physios osteos chiros everyone that's involved in msk care are still being fed similar sorts of beliefs and information right yeah, where did it come from? I mean, 
think if you'd gone back 100 years or 200 years, none of us would have had those beliefs. And I think about the 1960s or so, was it 1960s, 70s, Alfred Neshamerson started looking at discs and spines and moving them around and looking at profiles of loading and started to... And Pinchabi. Yeah, exactly. And started looking at how it was doing and then we're thinking, and then those are reinforced by lots of the work. And I mean, Stuart McGill's big in this field and Callahan looking at models of how we injured discs and how we can do it i think physio needs to hold its hand up where we we went through certainly back in the 80s and 90s we went through a phase of bending is bad and extension is good around disc mechanics and disc bulges and that became really quite a firm belief and the beliefs of our profession then sort of almost become the beliefs of culture and the beliefs of the media and then it starts to feed each other and feed each other and it just became to these societal beliefs that that lifting is dangerous and bending your back is bad for you Mm. and it seems to be a struggle to shift those things and then that vicarious experience of when a family member has back pain it often hurts to bend and so the presumption is well that's not good is it so i'd better not bend you know often when you've got sore back pain it's sore to move yeah, and bending is a common movement, and often bending it hurts, and it's often a common trigger. But you know, loading the back is often a common trigger occasionally to flares of back pain, and and mm. you know, patients tell us that lifting it can trigger it. And that's so. How do you so? How do you frame that? So that's you know, that's a common experience for me. Is that patients associate the development of their back pain with a lifting behavior, picking up a pair of socks in the shower, washing my feet, whatever they did, pain came on. And they are often just convinced and just completely obsessed with this causation that it happened because I bent and that was the thing that kind of drove my pain. What's your advice around having a conversation around that? It's tricky. That's patience, isn't it? That's you know, it's dealing with patience. And I suppose in dealing with patience, it you know, you need an ally in the room, don't you? So as part of a clinical encounter, I'm trying to develop of how this person is making sense of their problem. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of this common sense model of back pain that is, that is coming around. I mean, JP Caniero has just written a whole paper on it. Of how is this person in front of you making sense of their problem and how is that them informing them of what they do and how they and how they behave? So if someone came in like that, the first thing I want to do is a really good conversation and understanding where I'm trying to build up a relationship and a therapeutic alliance. And within that is how, is, you know, what are they thinking about? What do they think is happening when they're bending? And it's very common that when we get down to their, but the patient's beliefs of what they think is happening when they're doing those tasks is it's around, it's a dangerous task, it's sore, it's damaging me, and that sort of stuff. And I think that strongly influences their behavior around doing such tasks. Mm. Now, how we change that, I think, is, I mean, my bias is, is looking at ways so I would expose people to possibly doing it differently. And can we start to look at how they're behaving around lifting and bending and try and do some behavioral experiments around doing it differently? And how does it feel reflecting that back to them to try to build them an understanding in and around the back? What it's not is this person coming in the room and me saying, well, no, well, you're Lisa crazy. <laughs> yeah, we now know this. And this is how, how it is. So, you know, tips are uh, the clinical encounter. It's a bit of an art form, isn't it? Yeah, I've done that. I've said, there's no point trying to keep your back straight. You know, there's no evidence for it. And you just, you blast their beliefs out of the water and it does, does no one any good, does it? 
it does nobody any good. You don't need to be the expert in the room here. It is not helpful. But guiding people on a journey and taking people through a journey, and you know it's going well. It's after a session or the second session, they start coming up with these ideas themselves. Whoa, you know, it, maybe it's not quite as dangerous as what I thought. And then you can start exploring it. Well, where, where do these beliefs come from? What are you thinking? Why are you thinking it? And then start, to, and start a conversation and a journey around there. But there's something powerful in behavior experiments, I think, in and around getting people to experience something different for themselves. And when we have that, I think that's quite powerful. And I think people can really then teach themselves and they can then change their own belief systems based on their own evidence, mm. not on the evidence that I'm giving them. Yeah, experience matters. You know, this is called words matter. It should be called experience. And words matter. Yeah. But it's too long to fit on the front of the iTunes front cover. Would you hope that people's lifting behavior changes after a course of treatment? Do you know what I mean? After a period of time, exposure to you experiencing these different things. And is there evidence about changing lifting behavior? Because we know behavior change in all sorts of areas of clinical practice is really hard. But is there any evidence that actually these conversations, these expectancy violations or behavioral experiments, whether or not they do change lifting behavior in the longer term? I mean, you look at, no, I'm not sure there is anything. I think more stuff is going to come out. So you look at some of JP's case study series that he did recently. The single study design. It's a single study design, but it's a beginning. You know, I think there's more stuff in the Kenny Matic stuff coming out. I, you know, Pete's not told me yet, but with Nick Sansini's PhD around lifting and his systematic review, I'm watching that space over the next few years. I think there may be kinematic data coming out of that at some point, and it'll be, it'll be interesting to actually see. Because not the CFT stuff reports improved levels of disability. That was Shartan's yeah. trials at one year and five years, I think. That pain didn't change so much, but the level of disability, so at least the perception of... Pain did change, but it didn't change them significantly in between groups. Yeah, okay. So certainly there's a good signal that the perception of behaviour or disability, how you define that, that they are less disabled, perceptively less disabled, which might carry over in terms of some quantitative measure of biomechanics or kinematics. Yeah, so, like, you know, are they moving quicker, more confidently? Less knee bend. Yeah, less knee bend, more range of motion. There you go. There's your, another study for you. <laughs> and so in your, is it how much you were doing manual handling training at some point? I've never done much manual handling training. Okay. I'm starting to design and write a few manual handling training things in and around Sheffield at the minute. Um, but it's the first time I've ever done it. So prior, prior to this year, I've never stood up and, gi- and given manual handling training. And where does that information come from? Where, do, where, do, where does the manual handling guidebook come from around lifting? Who develops that? It's dead interesting because we keep being told that there is guidelines and guideline lifting, don't we? And, it's, and the guidelines tell us it's got to be a straight back and the guidelines tell us it's got to be an, a knee bend. But I've looked for it and I don't know where the guidelines come from. And if you actually look, I mean, I can only speak on behalf of the UK, but people who are who run this in the UK are called the health and safety executive, the HFC. And if you look at their guidelines around lifting, they look reasonably sensible and pragmatic. I mean, hang on, I've just got the website here. Okay. I'm just on the HFC website now around lifting. And it says, um, get a slight bend in your back uh, and your hips and your knees bend down to it without either fully flexing your spine or fully squatting. That sounds pretty pragmatic and reasonable to me. So, 
I think what's happened is, is people have a perception of what the guidelines are hmm. without actually there being any guidelines around this. I think people, I think people have extrapolated from their own data and from their own reading of the research. Hmm. What would the guidelines? So, if we were going to write, if you were going to write a new set of guidelines, or rather. What is the lifting advice? So what, what, and I know that there's going to be parts of this advice which won't, you know, the evidence will still, won't necessarily be evidence to support it. But what is a, what kind of advice do you give patients, people about lifting and bending? Yeah, I mean, what we're not saying and what nobody's saying, what I think some people think we're saying is it's impossible to, to injure your back lifting. No one's saying that. So if we put more force on our back than our back can tolerate, we are putting our back at risk. Yeah. So I'm quite comfortable with saying to people in and around lifting that we need to lift weights that are within our within our ability to actually lift them. We need to lift weights that are familiar to us. We need to lift weights that we're conditioned to. We need to have task-specific fitness. I'm really comfortable with that. And loading the spine is a small risk factor for mm. back pain. And the heavier manual jobs and the heavy manual occupations do come with a slight increase of risk of back pain. So I'm quite happy for, I mean, I don't think it's a huge risk. I think Peter Conan's studies were saying it's around 25 kilos, 25 times a day increases your risk of back pain by about 4%. Un, and underneath that, the risk come down. So I don't, you know, so what we're not saying is loading the spine doesn't in, slightly increase the risk of back pain. I think, I think it can. Do they, just for the confounders, so the, the work environment, the fulfillment of those jobs, do we know that it, it's, the, it's the lifting within those jobs rather than anything else? You'll need to interview him. I believe his, <laughs> I believe his PhD was very rigorous, and I would, strongly suspect, I would strongly suspect he did. Yeah. But again, I think, you know, re, a recent Twitter stream he said was, you know, he went out into his PhD thinking if we just took load off people in work, their back pain would improve. But I think, you know, it's a, it's a much more nuanced conversation than that. And I think if we unloaded people at work, I'm not sure we'd really change the back pain problem at work a great deal. Um, but so in and around advice I give to people that is lifting is, yeah, I would say you need to be fit to lift. You need to be fit and used to lifting the, the load that's in front of you. Load matters. Moment arms matter. If you're lifting a really heavy load, it's better to get the loading close. It's better to get down to, down to it, get the load into your belly button. I think that's all reasonable advice. I've got no problem with any of that. I think the problem we get is, and the problem where we can become stuck is if then that advice becomes in and around minutiae of advising people on posture of getting people really internally focused on what postures they're trying to achieve right you've got to have your back at this position you've got to be in that posture you've got to be in this posture which for some people are going to be impossible to achieve which if you're lifting something off the floor you're bending your back yeah if you're going to lift something off the floor you are bending your back uh, and, and it's almost impossible not to so to then say to those people that in doing something that you can't avoid Actually, you're putting yourself at huge risk of injuring yourself. I'm not sure how helpful that is. But it's difficult because the minute you start to, when you just said, well, I'm comfortable giving some advice about having the load close to you and maybe some other postural cues, if you like, or, or positional cues. Positional cues, yeah. Yeah. And, but the minute, uh, the, so I think the slippery slope for some is that well, you, the minute you even give a postural cue, you are slipping into, you are stepping into the realm of positions, posture, people like black and white either none of it matters do whatever you want <laughs> or it's just the super specific you know pelvis back at a certain angle but what you're saying and i would completely agree is a bit like the hsc advice there's a kind of reasonable middle ground where 
Yeah. Where some you know, biomechanical, biological factors are, it might well be relevant. Yeah. And it's been comfortable presenting the ones which are salient to that individual and not just either or, all or nothing. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. I think moment arms matter. That's, that's, that's the other podcast. <laughs> yeah. And I guess the other thing might be is to, when you have that conversation with patients about moment arms, for example, or, or providing those positional cues, is to reflect back, and this is, I've just found out recently, it's the Kieran O'Sullivan talk back technique, to see what they took away from that and to make sure they haven't latched on to nuances and their, their, their mind is focusing on whether or not their TVA is, is firing at 0.2 milliseconds or whatever. So I'm going to, if it's okay, just get some specifics in terms of, and I'm not looking for a script or recipe of phraseology from you, but how you might you might explain to patients or some of the phrases you might use with patients to either communicate the safety of lifting or the pain experience when they're lifting or bending. Are there any snippets of conversations that you might use? So patient comes in and they say, when I go to bend forward, put my socks on or lift up my cat, whatever it is, it really hurts. I've got lots of pain in my back. And, you know, what's that about? Or I'm worried that it's my disc about to explode. What sorts of, I guess, a conversation might you have? What kind of what kind of words might be helpful? And I'm not looking for a kind of blanket statement of, of but how might you reframe some of that stuff? And I know you said, well, I'm interested in how they make sense of it. Are there any ways that you might, any strategies that you have found useful? Yeah, I mean, it's, if someone comes in with those sorts of belief systems around lifting, a, a, a lot of the time I'll say, you know, that's really quite interesting. You've obviously got these strong damage beliefs. You're really, you know, you're really thinking that lifting is really dangerous to you. And then I'll often then, rather than try and educate people around, actually, this, this is what we now know, I'll look and say, can, can you show me? Can you show me what you mean? Can you show me how you're lifting something off the floor? Can you show me how you're doing that? And I'll quite quickly go into them, people show me these techniques. And from that, you can just, you can kind of drive the conversation. That, that was quite hard for you. How does it feel to you? How does that feel within your body when you actually do that? And often they will start reflecting back to you. It feels awkward. It feels tight. It feels all these. And you can kind of latch onto that. You know, see, you, you're right. That's how it looks to actually me. You look like you actually, when you're doing that, you look like you think you're going to explode. And it looks awkward. Would you be up for like just playing with a few ideas and seeing if we could get you lifting a bit differently and see how it feels, see how we get you moving. And most people say, yeah, I've got no problem with that. What do you mean? And then we can run people through a series of what we went over before. So fairly simple behavioral experiments where we're, let's try this. What happens if all these stiffening, guarding behaviors that you're using, what it looks like for me that you're using to do that, what if we start to strip them away? What if we start actually getting you moving, actually not holding your breath, bracing and grimacing and guarding what if we actually get you doing that task and get you doing briefly smoothly relaxing your body as you do it how does that feel what's it like now that's not me telling them anything i'm not i'm not trying to go there saying no this is how it is i'm trying to get them to explore and then often often it feels a lot better and then you say then you can say well what do you make of that what are you thinking now and then start to build the conversation around that and then they can then go on that journey of actually you know what i see your point mm. if i start moving like this it does feel an awful lot more comfy for me and then i think it leads into once you're at that stage i think it's a lot easier to then start a conversation is do you mind i always when i'm going to give information i try and ask permission of the patient you know there's a few things we found out about lifting in the last few years. 
are you interested? Do you want to know about this sort of stuff? Or when I often see people that present like you, not you, but other people that, that present like you, this is what I commonly see. Do you want to know about that? And most people say, yeah, that's really interesting. Start telling me. And once you've got the permission to then start to give a bit of information, after a little bit of, ex- of behavioral experiments, it seems to then go reasonably quite well to say, well, what we now know about lifting is X, Y, and Z, or what these movements are, X, Y, and Z. So I think that that's part of a clinical encounter. I think it's tricky for that sort of education to be part of a manual handling training package. Why, why do you think? Because it's so focused on communication and perhaps they're... I think so. I, think, I, I don't think we want to stand up in the front of manual handling training and try and treat anybody with, with back pain. Um, I think we can definitely start to tell people evidence-based information and we can start to tell people sensible information, but I don't think we want to start treating people. I think that's part of a clinical encounter. I'm happy happy to to tell people that that the spine is robust. It's generally really tolerable to withstand the lows that we put on it on the day, but I don't particularly go into the specifics of treatment. It's really hard, isn't it? Because pretty much what you just said and the example you just gave with your patient, for that to be successful, it's really contingent on this well-developed relationship between you and the patient, which takes time and is complex and takes skill to to develop. And as a manual handling advisor, I'm just imagining that they either go into a workplace, I could be wrong here, but a group of employees and just give information about lifting and maybe demonstrate and there's some group work, whatever. And that's quite a different environment context compared to you in a room with a patient getting to know them making sense yeah i get it but there's no put good but at the minute we can sometimes in some environments be at a stage where what is happening and being said in a treatment room is in direct conflict of what is happening in training and out in the workplace so if i'm trying to within a treatment context get people to have confidence to move their spines and have confidence that actually this task that you've hurt for for the last five years and stuff like that and we're exposing them to it in that way if they're then going out into the workplace and hearing the direct opposite message i think it's a problem and i think that's where patients can get quite confused so i think what what we can do is we we, we can build within workplaces these complementary relationships where treatment stays treatment but actually the messages are reinforced by by workplace messages Mm. Yeah, so so they're not opposed. And the same problem is across the professions that you need this consistency of messaging across yeah. all the different disciplines. And you, you had a really nice way, similar to how Matthew Lowe said, about asking permission to give information. Would you mind just talk, if we go into about that, because patients will often say, well, you know, I saw my last therapist, whatever they might be, and they, they said that, you know, I've got to protect my back and keep it straight and keep it braced. And you're, what enters the room now is you're kind of like, oh, do I contradict their last therapist? I'm gonna, I don't want to, I don't want to confuse them any further. But you, you can tackle that quite nicely by saying, you know, can, can I, can we share, can I share some information with you? What other people have said is, yeah, I mean, one of the more useful things I did about five years ago. I used to work for mental health trusts, where a lot of the staff there um, worked with people with alcohol addictions and drug addictions. And as part of the training package at that trust, people could go on two-day motivation interviewing workshops where it was paid for by the trust, it was free to everybody, but it was tended to be aimed at drug and alcohol workers about giving them motivation to bring techniques. And I thought, that course sounds great. So about five years ago, I went on that course, and it was just really useful. All the examples were around drug and alcohol, and the guy who ran the course, I've never had a physio come on this course before, because he said, well, how is this applicable to you? <laughs> and I was like, well, we deal with humans as well, you know. But it, it was just really useful. And it's just simple techniques of communication in building collaborations 
in ways of doing things that I think we can take in that actually make clinical encounters go a lot smoother. Because I think before that, if I look back at my practice 10 years ago, you know, you could, you know, I used to lecture people a bit much on pain and I used to tell them about all these things that I thought were amazing. And if I gave them this information and this knowledge, why don't you now understand it or why why don't you know it? And when you look at, you know, basic communication techniques, I'm not sure how helpful it really was. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I've certainly been there when I, you come off the back of a course, explain pain or, or something like that. I'm not yeah. criticizing explain pain anyway, but you know, you just inf- you're now informed and you've got this kind of knowledge bursting from your brain, and you just want to tell the world about it, including the next patient that walks through your door on a Monday morning. Totally. I mean, and also you can get a little bit excited in the same way with like on on this on this framework that we're using the CFT framework. A few years ago. If someone came in with locked up, guarded, bracing with a stiff back, I was so excited. I couldn't wait to tell them just how quick actually we can get your back pain feeling a lot better. And I'd almost be treating them by the time the subjective was halfway over. And in the last few years, I've had to slow down a lot. And, you know, every patient's hearing this for the first and everyone's going on their journey. And it's just to slow down, stop it, involve them in their, in their education journey as well. But you do, you can get very excited. Any other kind of nuggets of tips or advice? And again, it's not like some self-help 10 steps to good lifting advice. Any other pieces of information that you think that you've learned along the way that might be helpful to others listening? Nuggets of advice around lifting. Sometimes I think it's useful to look internally and make sure what exactly are our fears as well. What are our pain beliefs and our pain fears and is there the possibility that even though when we verbalize things that we can transmit messages non-verbally occasionally when i've looked at second opinion cases around when people are bringing a few years ago people bringing patients to me around lifting you could almost see there was an implicit and there was this implicit fear of lifting from the treating clinicians as well so i think sometimes a period of introspection can be really useful if that's a nugget what was that paper I read in 2015 was it lake or something i can't remember the paper where it took a group of people lifting and it got them to do a lifting experiment with guided by physios and the two groups of physios had to fill in a questionnaire and they either had low kinesophobia beliefs or the clinician had high kinesophobia beliefs and the clinicians in no way verbalized any beliefs but they then put the participants through a lifting study and the participants that were in the arm of the treating clinicians with higher kinesophobia beliefs lifted less weight even though there was nothing different in the verbal encounters that's really interesting who knows exactly what's going on there but sometimes you can just be in a room and you can feel caution. You can feel fear and caution. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're dealing with persistent pain and we're dealing with people that have pain a long time, I'm not saying about this in, in, the, in the acute context. And I'm, you know, I'm not reckless and I'm, you know, I'm really not. But when we're dealing with people that have had back pain a long time and they're on and off and often yeah. it's triggered by no specific event, they pick up subtle, cautious, fearful, beliefs from clinicians and i think being aware of those is really helpful mm. and sometimes it takes a bit of bravery all around well, well let's go on to the acute page so, so in terms of so what's your advice and again i'm not going to uh, hold you to this advice as being generic for every patient but yeah acute patients that do come in and it hurts when they bend or it hurts when they lift is it reasonable then to say 
don't lift for a bit. Like it's okay to, or, or again, it's a slippery slope. Of, I don't want to be fear avoidant. I just, there's, I can't provide any fear messages which might suggest fear avoidance. So just go and start lifting cupboards. Well, what would you tell someone? I went out for a run the other day and I wore a new pair of shoes. And I had a really sore Achilles tendon for a while. Am I going to say just crack on and keep running on your Achilles tendon as hard as you can? I probably wouldn't. I'd say, oh, you've got quite a cute Achilles there. Why don't you back off a little bit? Let, let the Achilles settle down. You, haven't, you know, it doesn't look rich to me. It looks pretty good. It'll settle down in time. Is if you exercise to keep you entertained while time passes and then we'll just build, build your running back up again. So I think it's imperfectly possible to give advice like that in a way that's not particularly catastrophic. And, you know, if you load your spine, this is perfectly possible. You know, you load it past what it, it loads it can tolerate. It's perfectly possible to injure it. And if people have had a, you know, good tissue injury, what do you do? Yeah, back off it for a few weeks. Let the pain settle down. Um, often you can then start talking to them about, well, probably you, you might not have been fit for that task. It might have been something a bit new and a bit novel. Or was it at the end of a hell of a week and you've been knackered and you've done tons of stuff and you haven't slept and all that sort of stuff. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. But I think you can give that advice within a deep threatened context. I think we do it pretty well for other body parts. That that metaphor, the straw that broke the camel's back, it's so appropriate. <laughs> I'm worried that it's <laughs> it's catastrophic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so appropriate in terms of, you know, Greg Lehman, what's in your cup type thing. It's just, just enough to make things come to the fore. It's both perfect, but it's like, did it have to be back? <laughs> Couldn't have been something else. I just want to say that the final paper, the, the editorial you wrote about sit up straight, is it time to really reevaluate posture? Firstly, I want to direct listeners to that paper and I'll link these in the show notes. But maybe just we didn't talk about that final paper and just, yeah, touch on that. Again, that comes from a clinical frustration that when you deal with people that have reasonably had pain for a while and they're fairly fairly distressed by it you don't often see people come in with a with a rounded more relaxed posture these people seem to come in very straight almost hypervigilant on their posture seem to be a clinical sort of this is what we're saying now what i'm not you know i'm now not i don't label posture at all so i I don't get into this is good this is i don't don't particularly school and teach people on it but what i did want to do is but often people when they get neck and back pain is they default to what they think is correct and what they think is helping themselves and they will then start to sit as straight as they can in what they what is culturally perceived as the correct posture and it can irritate the hell out of them and there's nothing wrong with trying to vary your posture relax it a bit get in positions of comfort it's not going to damage you and i don't think we should be giving the advice that that there is a single correct posture to sit in and i think that paper paper came out of that we still work in office environments where there's lots of ticks and crosses on walls and training and seats and posture stuff and i'm not sure that we can say that that's evidence-based did you get much did you get a sense of the feedback from that paper anyone disagree with you or much pushback um no not particularly. I've never really no. No one's emailed us to say that we're dangerous and we're reckless in the profession. No. Yeah, it was a lovely paper. It was a really nice. I love those. It was the JOSPT. It's a great journal. They've always got great editorials. Yeah, and they've got nice little, little infographics. And I think it's try, it, part of the push is to try and get information accessible to members of the public and in in language that makes sense to them to take some of the threat and the fear 
out of what actually is just fairly normal everyday tasks. And part of that is these infographics are really nice to do that. And if people, you know, I'm the world's worst DSE assessor, um, in, you know, in the sense of if people don't have pain and they feel reasonably comfortable at their desk, I really don't care what your posture looks like. I really don't care what your desk looks like. You know, I think as soon as people start having problems and they don't feel comfy and they feel awkward and it starts to concern them, then I'm interested. I'm really interested. But we don't have data that says that if you sit in a certain way, it will then lead to back pain. We don't have that. And then we certainly don't have data saying that if you sit in a certain, that if you have pain, if you then change your posture, it then improves it. We don't have that either. And how frustrated do you get when you go into social media? And just see the tidal wave of opposing advice from your paper, essentially, which would say that it's all about posture and you know lifting matters. Do you ever feel that this is just a lot? We're just battling. We're battling people with five billion followers providing erroneous information around lifting and posture and that kind of stuff. And ah. then there's our, there's your little editorials, which are. <laughs> I feel like that with some of the work that I do. It's just feel that it's just a tidal wave. You'll fight. You'll swim against the tide. That's the that's the phrase. I mean, what more? Um, I don't get particularly frustrated anymore. No, I think it's because I surround myself. <laughs> no, I don't. I think, do I do I surround myself in an echo chamber? Probably. I think we all do to a certain extent in Twitter. You got to get on Instagram. So we want if you want. <laughs> oh no, no, no! I'm, I have a bit of time for Twitter, and that's about it, really. I don't get particularly frustrated. I think what we can do is we can do what we feel is right with the tools that we have at the time that we have. And I think that's all we're trying to do is, is, is we're trying to get evidence-based messages out there. We're trying to get them useful for the public. We're trying to get workplaces engaged. And every door I push on, especially in the manual handling training world, they're all open doors. You know, um, speaking to the manual handling trainers here in Sheffield, they're absolutely on board. They're listening to, so that's really interesting. You know, I'm not finding resistance, particularly. Maybe it'll come and find me after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but we aren't giving messages that are reckless. I mean, we aren't saying it's impossible to injure about lifting. We're not saying that. All we're, saying, all we're trying to appeal for is can we take some of the threat away? Can we give what we believe are messages that are to the best available evidence that we have? And can we de-threaten them? That seems like a pretty reasonable thing to do to me. Mm, I think so. David, that's brilliant. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. No problem. It's a pleasure to be here. Brilliant. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.